We live in a disconnected but connected world. All of us have the ability right now to pull out a small device out of our pockets. Some of you have it in your hands. And you're gonna, you can connect with almost anyone anywhere in the world in a moment. Think about that. Through social media, through email, even you can call, you can text, you can pull up WhatsApp, you can connect with people all over the world. We are so connected, but we often feel disconnected, right? We have so many people around us. We're following so many different people on social media. I mean, most of us here know all the habits of our friends' dogs through Instagram, right? Some of you put a lot of dog stuff on Instagram. So I know what it's like to have a dog, even though I don't have one. We know the political opinions of those around us through Facebook, and we try to stay away. (laughs) We know the personalities of people in different situations through Snapchat, and we can find out people's baggage through MySpace. You know what I'm saying? We can go back. We have the ability to learn so much about each other. It is at our fingertips, and yet we can feel disconnected, even though we are more connected than ever. And this is true of our faith as well, right? Many of you are here because you're exploring the Christian faith, or you're here because you're looking to reconnect with God through faith. And so you, you, you have all these opportunities to connect to who God is, to learn about who God is. You're here at church because you want to learn about God. You want to hear from God. You want to ask some of these questions and bring these doubts before the Lord. And you want to kind of dissect and understand more about who he is. You go to community group. You spend time with your friends and you talk about it. Maybe you spend time praying on your own. You read your Bible on your own. You do all these different things, opportunities to connect with God, but you feel disconnected. Am I the only one that ever feels like that? You have all these opportunities to connect to the living and present God, but it feels like you're not connected. You feel distant. You feel dry. And you're hoping for something to change because all of us bring that desire here that we want to connect and experience with God. And tonight in our passage, our second second to last week of our series, Face to Face with God, Jesus comes face to face with the very first Christian, Mary Magdalene. And he, he encounters her in this way that is shocking to her. See, she's seeking after Jesus. She's seeking to connect with God. She's going through a lot. She's processing a lot. Jesus has just been killed. He's been laid in the tomb, and she's going to the tomb to weep and to mourn. And she is hoping and desiring for something And God meets her in a way that she doesn't expect. And I think as we look at this text tonight, it's very clear two things. One, what does it look like to reconnect with God? And then two, what does it mean to be a Christian? Because Jesus, he lays that out before us and God's word makes that known here in our passage tonight. So look at the very first verse with me. Here's what it says. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So Jesus has been killed on Friday. They have taken his body down. They have buried his body. And now it's the first day of the week, which was Sunday. And Mary has arrived early. Mary Magdalene before the sunrise, early in the morning. And she's called Mary Magdalene because that's where she's from. She's from a region called Magdala, which is around the Sea of Galilee. And so she's named after uh, her place of origin. She's Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. And she's a very known figure if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the different Gospels, because she's a follower of Jesus. Now, sometimes we think that Jesus was traveling around for three years of public ministry with just the disciples. And there's many moments where Jesus is only with the disciples. 
But there are a lot of people that are following Jesus and the disciples around. They're consuming what Jesus is saying. They're digesting his teaching. They believe that he is the Messiah and he is the Savior. And they're just amazed at who he is. And Mary Magdalene is one of these people. She's been following Jesus around. But she's also a supporter of the ministry. She's probably financially supporting in some level Jesus' ministry. And so she's arriving now as a follower and supporter of Jesus to the tomb three days later, broken. Because her savior, her leader, has been killed. And none of the disciples and none of the followers and supporters of Jesus wanted this and never saw this. They could not imagine that Jesus was going to be killed. And so she arrives. Maybe she's considering, like, was it all a waste? Now he's been killed. And she's coming there to weep and to mourn, maybe to honor Jesus and who he is and, and what he taught. And she arrives there and she sees that the stone has been taken away. And so you have to imagine the first thing she's thinking, like, what has happened? And she glances by the tomb and she could tell the body is gone. So she's thinking someone must have stole the body. And maybe, then maybe she begins to think, well, maybe not only did they steal the body, maybe someone's here to, to desecrate and to dishonor the body, to not allow Jesus to have a proper burial because a lot of people hate Jesus. That's why they killed him, because he was a threat to the Jewish rule and to Roman rule. And so maybe someone's coming here to, to dishonor who he is and to not allow him to have a proper burial and resting place and she's thinking and pondering all these things and she immediately runs it says in verse 2 to go to where Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved that's John our author so she runs immediately to where they are because they're hiding Mary goes to the tomb the disciples are hiding because they're fearful that they're going to have the same thing happen to them Jesus has been killed they've been associated very closely with him and so for fear for their lives they're hiding at this point but Mary knows where they are, so she runs, and she gets Simon, and she gets John, and she says, you've got to come with me. Here's what she says. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb, and both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So she tells him, the body is gone. I don't know where Jesus is, what has happened, and so Peter and John take off. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's also the Usain Bolt of the disciples, as we see here. I think he probably writes that just for Peter, like, remember when I beat you in the race? He says that he arrives first. In verse 5, it says, And stooping to look in, he looks in the tomb, he saw the linen cloths lying there, the cloths that would have been wrapped around Jesus' body after he had died, the bloody linen cloths lying there in the tomb, but he did not go in. Now you have to be thinking about what they're thinking in this moment. They've witnessed Jesus be tortured and brutalized and crucified and stabbed in the side. And then they know Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus wrapped his body and prepared it and put it in the tomb and they've closed it up with a stone in front of the tomb. And to walk to the tomb and to see the stone rolled away and the tomb empty was shocking because tombs didn't have doors. They had massive stones in front of them. Most of them weighed around 3,000 to 4,000 pounds. 
And a tomb would have been cut out of a cave, and they would have cut a channel in the bottom. So what they would have done, they would have taken a three to 4,000 pound stone and rolled it into the channel so that it was very difficult to remove the stone. You have to push a three to 4,000 pound stone up a channel to get it out of the way to enter the tomb. Because you're not supposed to enter the tomb once the bodies are placed in there and it's covered over. And so to arrive there and to see the stone gone and to think what has happened, who came here? It's not just one person. It had to have been like a small army of people to move this stone out of the way and to see Jesus' body not there would have been so much to process. And it says there, as as I mentioned, that there's the bloody linen cloths lying there in the tomb, which also had to have been perplexing because Jesus, we're told in the previous chapter, that he's wrapped from head to toe with linen cloths after he died. And then Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, to honor him, per the Jewish custom, they take myrrh, which is this gum-like substance, and aloe, which we all know what it is because we're from Miami. We use it often. They mix them together, and they treat his body with myrrh and aloe. And they treat his body with 75 pounds of it, which is a really peculiar detail. You're like, why why would you include that? Well, if you think about it, imagine, I want you to imagine right now being wrapped head to toe with linen cloths and then being covered with 75 pounds of a gum-like substance mixed with aloe, 75 pounds of it all over you. Are you feeling claustrophobic? Like, that's terrifying. (laughs) That's like, you can't even do that on Fear Factor. And so he's sitting there and he's thinking to himself, this doesn't make any sense. Why would a thief come to the tomb, remove the stone, and then unwrap the body of Jesus to then steal the body? I mean, Jesus' body was mutilated. Why would you unwrap it to then steal it? So he's processing all of this. And he's, he, he knows as well that Jesus is dead. It's not as if Jesus, maybe somehow he survived the torture, the crucifixion that was hours and hours on end. And he was stabbed in the side and his, his blood poured out like water. Maybe he just went unconscious and then they wrapped him up. And maybe he awoke like three days later and he's like, whoa, why am I in the tomb? And Somehow he was able to move the three to 4,000 pound stone out of the channel by himself and get out of the tomb. See, they know that's not possible. Not only because all those details, but also because he would have been covered in 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe and he would have suffocated even if he was alive. So they know he was dead and now he's gone and the body's been unwrapped, which makes no sense. And so Peter arrives and Peter, it says, came in, verse 6, following him, and he went into the tomb. This is Peter. Peter's like, I'm not going to stop outside. I'm going straight in the tomb. And then John follows. That's how Peter does. He always jumps right into the situation. And Peter, as well, saw the linen cloths lying there. And then he saw the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So now it's all starting to be even more peculiar because not only is the stone gone, the body's missing, it's unwrapped, the bloody cloths are still lying there, but then the face cloth is folded up by itself, which doesn't make any sense if someone came to steal the body, right? Like, why would you, 
open the tomb, unwrap the body, and then be like, wait, before we leave, let's fold up the face cloth real quick right here because that's an important detail for stealing a body. And so what we find out here is that John and Peter, as they look into the tomb, as they kind of see everything that's happening, they come to believe that Jesus is resurrected. And it's based here, it's really important that you see this, it is based on logic and reason. They're looking at this and they're saying, logically, it makes no sense that he was still alive. We know he was dead. And we can reasonably deduce that it doesn't make any sense that somebody would move the stone to steal the body and unwrap it and then put the face cloth there. So Jesus is resurrected. The text says this, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he also went in and he saw and he believed. But then it adds this detail. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead then the disciples went back to their homes. They're like, Carter, you just said that they believed, and now the text is saying that they didn't understand that Jesus would rise from the dead. You see, here's what we see about Peter and John here at the very beginning. They have faith, but their faith is limited. Their faith is based upon logic and reason. From what they're seeing and observing, the only thing that makes sense is that Jesus has come back from the dead. But what they assume is that Jesus has ascended to the Father. See, Jesus has been preparing them for this. He's been telling them that he is going to return back to his Father. He's going to ascend back to his throne. And so they believe that Jesus has, in fact, come back from the dead, but that he's ascended. They don't still understand that he's actually come back and he's alive and they're going to meet him. They, They have no category for that yet. So their faith at this moment is still limited because it is only based on logic and reason. And it won't be until after this encounter that we're looking at tonight that they find full faith because they're going to see Jesus face to face because he's going to go where they are. See, a lot of us have this kind of story, right? Where we step one of our faith is based upon logic and reason, I know that's so much of my story as well, that we, we come to God's word, we're searching, we're seeking, we're asking questions of life and faith and meaning. And so we come to God's word and we begin to apply Jesus' teachings to our life. We digest it, we, we think about it, we process it, we apply it to relationships and to work and to the way that we think and, and we begin to see the benefit of it, Right? The disciples spent three years with Jesus, and they have seen the benefit of applying Jesus' words and his teachings to their life. But then what happens with everybody is that there's a point in your journey of faith where as you begin to apply God's word to your life and you see the benefits in your life, that you arrive at the death and resurrection. Every faith journey brings you to that moment where you have to deal with the death and resurrection of Jesus because it is the center of the Christian faith. It is the center of the gospel. It is the climax of the whole story. It is the mission of Jesus to die and to come back from the dead. And so what you do, if you're like me, maybe some of you at the very beginning of this journey, some of you have walked through this, you begin to ask questions like, okay, I know he died, we're sure of that, but could he have come back from the dead? You think to yourself, well, maybe Jesus was a liar. Maybe he was just like trying to create this movement and he wanted this power and he wanted all of these things to happen and he wanted this following. But see, then it's hard to believe logically and reasonably because people don't die for lies. 
when they know it's a lie. People die for lies all the time, but they don't know it's a lie. They've been convinced that what they believe is true. Very few people are willing to be brutally tortured and killed when they know what they're saying is not true. So maybe he was like a lunatic. Maybe he's a crazy person. Maybe he was just like saying, hey, I'm God in the flesh. He had the sign on the corner and people all of a sudden just started following him. But that's really hard to believe too because when you encounter somebody that is mentally unstable, it's very apparent. And very often people don't amass a movement. I don't know of any other movements where a, a lunatic amasses such a following that the religious leaders and the government views that person as such a threat that they kill them. But then you think about the disciples, and you're like, okay, well, what happened with the disciples? Maybe, maybe something happened, and I can't explain Jesus, but you think to yourself, okay, um, the disciples could have just made this all up, right? Like, they could have got the 12 disciples and some of the other followers and knocked out the Roman guards and got them. They moved the stone out of the way. They took Jesus' body and they got rid of it because nobody's ever found it. And then they went out and they started to tell people that Jesus came back from the dead because they didn't want the movement to die. They had given three years of their life. They don't want it to die. They want to keep it going. And they knew that if Jesus came back from the dead, they could keep it going because a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. But if Jesus came back from the dead... Now people will really believe it. But then you think to yourself, wait a second. That means all the disciples also were, they gave their life tortured, mutilated, and ultimately killed all of them except for John, who was exiled. They all gave their life for something that they knew was a lie. None of them recanted. Well, maybe, they, maybe the re reason that they gave their life was because they wanted to create this movement. They wanted the power and the wealth and the experience. Well, none of them had that. None of them saw any benefit in their life to this movement. None of them acquired any money. None of them had any power. None of them had any prestige. I mean, their lives were hard. Their lives were full of sacrifice, were full of difficulty for a lie if they stole the body. You see, at some point, your faith arrives at this place where you think to yourself, what happened in 33 AD? And whatever happened changed the course of history because we're here 2,000 years later talking about it still. And many of you are at that place or you have gone past that place where you said, logically and reasonably, the only thing that makes sense is that Jesus did in fact come back from the dead. That's step one of your faith. But What's important to see here, and it's going to be unpacked by John, is that that's a limited faith. If your faith is based only on reason and logic, you see, the Christian faith is a thinking faith. It is a faith that is reasonable and logical, but that's not all it is. It is also a faith where you encounter face-to-face -face with God. You experience Him. You see, the Christian faith is based not only on logic and reason, it is also based on experience, encountering the presence of God. And that's what we see with Mary, the very first Christian who we will see has full faith, not only logical and reasonable, but also encountering Jesus himself. It says that Mary, verse 11, stood outside the tomb. She was weeping outside the tomb. I love this little detail because the disciples go back and hide Right? They see, they, they believe that Jesus has resurrected. He's probably ascended to the Father. Like, we're going to go hide some more because <laughs> we don't want anyone to see this. Mary stays. You see the courage of Mary. 
She's, she's, she's seeking Jesus. She doesn't think about and care about what's going to happen to her. She stays in the garden. She's weeping. It says that she wept and she stooped to look in the tomb. So she looks in as well after Peter and John. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. So she looks in and she sees the same thing that Peter and John see. Nothing's changed. She sees the bloody linen cloth and the face cloth wrapped up. But then she also sees two angels, one at the head and one at the foot of where Jesus was laid with the bloody rags in the middle. And you're like, that's a really peculiar detail. And if you've spent time reading scripture, you know that every detail is important. So one of the things you have to ask yourself is, what is Mary seeing? Because it would have been clicking to her. You see, what she's observing is the new Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was not just something that Indiana Jones was chasing after, if you're wondering. It's a real thing. It was a prized possession, the most important possession for God's people in the Old Testament. And before Christ, it had gone missing. No one knows where it is. And she is observing the new Ark of the Covenant here in the empty tomb. Here's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. So what it looks like. So the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was placed in this room called the Holy of Holies in the temple. And it was a room that was separated by a curtain and no one was allowed access to that room except for the high priest one time a year. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was said to have, have held the presence of God. And as imperfect people, they were not allowed in. God's people were not allowed in to experience God's perfect presence. And so it was separated in this room. And so what would happen once a year is the high priest would take the blood of a spotless and a perfect lamb that was sacrificed and killed. And would take the blood and would go into the room of the Holy of the Holies on the day of Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And would take the blood and then sprinkle the blood in the very middle of the Ark of the Covenant. Right between the angel at the head and at the foot. Sprinkle the blood right in the middle. The reason that the high priest would do this is to atone for the sins of the people. It was to bring forgiveness for the sins of the people for one year. And then they would repeat that step the next year. Do you see what Mary's looking at? She looks into the tomb. She sees an angel at the head and an angel at the foot. And she sees the bloody rags of Jesus laying in the middle. She's looking at the new Ark of the Covenant. It is the empty tomb. And here's what's amazing. She's allowed to look at it. The stone's been rolled away. Can you imagine what she's processing there? There's atonement for her sins. Jesus has been saying that he is going to die for the sins of his people, that he has come to save sinners like us. He's going to give his body and his blood, and he's going to be buried. He's going to come back forth victorious from the dead. And as she looks at this, she sees that Jesus has, in fact, accomplished what he said he was going to. He gave his life, and he spilled his blood for the final atonement. He wasn't a lamb. He was the lamb of God. And he was spotless and he was perfect and he gave his life and his blood was placed here in the empty tomb. And now the stone has been rolled away and Mary is invited in to see not only her forgiveness but to experience the presence of God. This is such an important thing to remember. 
is that we are invited into the presence of God. We have free and full access to God's presence through faith. Peter looked in, John looked in, and Mary looked in. And through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, through belief, you're invited into God's presence. You're invited to see him. There's no more stone. There's no more curtain. There's no more spiritual hierarchy. There's no more earthly high priest. In fact, Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus is our new high priest, and you can go to him, the throne room of grace, at any point, at any moment, not one time a year, whenever you want, and you can find help, and you can find grace. Because you're invited into God's presence. That is such a beautiful promise. And Mary is looking at this. And she's believing this, but her faith is limited. But not only is her faith limited, she's still even a little bit unsure. Because we've all been there, right? Logically and reasonably, it makes sense, but you still are unsure. You still have questions. You still have thoughts. So it says in verse 13... As she's looking in and she's observing all of this, that the angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to him, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So Mary is seeking Jesus. She didn't leave and go back to hiding. She stayed in the garden. She's weeping. She looks in the tomb. She sees the new Ark of the Covenant. She's invited into the presence of God. She's coming to recognize and to see her atonement through what Jesus has accomplished for her. And she has this limited faith. Just like Peter and John, she's thinking to herself, does it make sense that the body was stolen? Maybe he's ascended. I'm not exactly sure. But she's still unsure. Maybe someone did take the body. And she turns around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. She thinks it's a gardener. You're like, how does that happen? I mean, she's a follower. She's a supporter. She knows what Jesus looks like. Have you ever watched those videos where the family member comes back and they haven't seen their friends or their loved ones in a while. They've been deployed. They've been, you know, in another country. They haven't seen each other for years. I watched one this week. And oftentimes what happens is when they're, when they're in the room, the family members don't recognize them. Right? They don't, because they're not expecting to see them. I was watching one this week where this mom hadn't seen her son in three years. And she's at a restaurant with her friend, and her son pretends to be the waiter. And she, her son comes up, and he's like, what would you like? And, she, what would you like? and she's like, a man. And, and, you know, like, that had to have been weird for the son, you know? And he's like, oh, what would you like to eat? And they're, like, having this whole conversation. And then, like, she's not getting it. And he had, like, a hidden camera kind of thing. And you're like, how does she not rec-? She's, like, looking at him and the whole thing. And then he goes, mom. And she's like, oh, my God. And she's like, goes crazy, and it's, you know, everyone, I cried, everyone cries, it's what happens every time. But see, Mary is not expecting to see Jesus. Just like Peter and John were not expecting for Jesus to actually be physically raised. And so she looks back, and she looks out of the tomb, and she's emotional, and she's feeling and processing all of these things, and she just assumes that the person that she's looking at and talking to is a gardener. 
See, isn't it ironic? She's talking to Jesus about Jesus. And oftentimes this is us, right? You're exploring faith. You're looking to reconnect with God. But so often you can be looking and talking to Jesus about Jesus. You're looking for God. You're looking to experience God. You're looking to reconnect with God. You're looking to come before his presence and and he's standing right in front of you. And you don't see it because you're not expecting for Jesus to arrive in the way that he arrives because he circumvents our expectations and our assumptions. He says one of the things that we, we all bring into this room, we all bring you know, baggage and, and different kind of doubts and different kind of questions, which is beautiful as a family of God that we can come together at very different places in life with different questions. But we all bring one thing. We all desire to encounter God's presence. We all want to experience God, every single one of us. But we're oftentimes like Mary Magdalene. We're looking for Jesus, we're seeking after Jesus, and he's standing right in front of us. And oftentimes, like Mary, we struggle with recognizing his presence and his nearness to us. John writes in, in 1 John, one of his letters, which had to have been really powerful for him to write because he's in this story, right, as he has this limited faith, and he's going to as well encounter Jesus right after this story. He says this, in 1 John 4.16, we have come to know God and to believe the love that God has for us. Here's reason and logic, right? We've come to know and we've come to believe in God's love for us. We've looked at the death and we've looked at the resurrection. We said, yes, Jesus has atoned for my sins. He's paid for my sins. He's died for me. And the only thing that makes sense is that he did, in fact, come back from the dead. And then he adds, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. He says, believe in God, abide in love, and you're going to experience God. You're going to come face to face with God because he will abide in you. You see, Jesus called Emmanuel, which means God with us, but if you're like me, a lot of times you can still feel disconnected. You can still feel isolated But here's one of the promises that we see, is that when you believe and when you abide in God's love, Jesus calls your name, and he'll awaken you to the reality of his nearness. And that's what happens here with Mary. It says that Jesus then said to her, Mary, just one word, and she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. You see, Mary can finally see when Jesus looks at her and just says her name. He just says, Mary, I'm right here. (laughs) I mean, you're asking all these questions. You have all these doubts. You have all these concerns. You think maybe I've been taken away. You're not really sure. You're processing all of this. You're wondering where I am, and I'm, I'm like right here. And this is the wonder of Jesus. You see, the very nature of wonder is to circumvent your expectations. It breaks your assumptions. It's very different than what you think or you expect. And one of the things about wonder is that you can't manipulate it. And that's true of coming to experience the wonder 
of who God is and coming into his presence in a relationship with Jesus, you can't manufacture it. You can't manipulate it. The only thing that you can do is draw near. And that's what Mary does. She is seeking Jesus. She just draws near. She's just staying in the garden. All the other disciples went away. She stays in the garden. And Jesus calls her name. You see, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves when you hear that is like, okay, Carter, what does it mean to draw near? I, I mean, if, if I draw near to God, then I'm going to experience the reality of his presence and Jesus is going to call my name. What does that mean? Well, John told us in 1 John 4, believe and abide. Believe, use reason and logic and think about the reality of your faith, but also abide in love. And then you're like, okay, well, now I have another question. What does it mean to abide in love? That's like a word I never use. Jesus tells us that. He says the way that you abide in love because God is love is that you love God with everything you have and you love others. You see, Jesus said that when you seek him, you find him. When you seek to love him, when you just stay at the tomb, you just look at it, you don't leave, you don't go home, you just stay there, you find him. He'll call your name if you just draw near because wonder requires proximity and engagement. You have to draw near. You have to be there. And then also love others. Jesus says in Matthew 25 that when you love other people, it's as if you're loving him. Isn't that amazing? When you're generous, when you care for people, when you're kind, when you're patient, when you're forgiving, it's as if you are doing those things to Jesus. It's as if you're loving him. There is nearness when you love others. John says, believe and abide. And when you believe and abide, what you find is hope. There's a great quote by Marilyn Meberg, a counselor and author. Here's what she says. Hope is the expectation of fulfillment that is anchored in God's promise to meet my need. Hope is not based on my emotional or mental determination. It is rooted in God. Quite simply, we are optimistic because we have placed our hope. What it means to hope is to place your hope in God as your God and God as your Father. And as Mary comes to Jesus, she, her faith becomes full because it's not just based on reason and logic, but she has now encountered Jesus face to faith because she is just drawn near. She's just drawn near and she's believed and she's abiding in the love of God and she hears Jesus call her name and she is full of hope. It says that she clings to Jesus. But then Jesus says, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, don't cling to me, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. You see, Jesus must ascend and she has to let go because he's going to go mediate for us. He's going to go take his place. But it's okay to let go. Here's why. Because God is now your God. And he's your father. See, he looks at Mary and he says, you can let go. You can let go of me. Because God's no longer distant. He's no longer abstract. There's no more stone. There's no more curtain. There's no more barrier of entry to access and encountering God. He is your God and your father. So you can place your hope there. As you believe and as you abide, you can find hope. And here's my prayer for you tonight. 
my prayer is that you recognize and realize that you have free access to God as your father at every moment through faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, through believing and knowing that he has atoned for your sins, that the stone has been rolled away so that you can actually approach the throne room of grace and find what you need and that you would then rest in the wonder of Jesus. You would abide in the love and the nearness of the Spirit and that you would place your hope in God as your good Father because He's your Father now. He's no longer abstract and distant because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Will you pray with me?